Sure, there are days. I was one of those that would get on a little boat with a 25-horsepower motor and putt down the lake at about three miles. I think I could swim faster, except I can't swim very well. We'd leave about 6 o'clock in the morning, get there just after lunchtime, strap on our backpacks, and begin our hike. And we would get there just in time to put our tents up before the sun went down and fall dead asleep to get up and spend the next 10 days, 17 hours a day, teaching and preaching God's Word to people who had never heard it. So yeah, I know what it's like to go up into those mountains and find those little pockets of people where there are no roads, just little narrow walking paths where they farm cassava, maybe a little bit of corn, live on their own. This is where God has planted us, and we love it, and we're thankful, and we love you, and we're glad we can be with you. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn with me to the book of Joshua, chapter 23. One of the things about studying any book of the Bible during the holiday season is you have lots of breaks. You, you kind of feel like you kind of are, are piecing it together. And we've made, this, we've made this big jump between the time when the Gibeonites came and they made this false treaty. They, they lied and they were taken in. And, of course, we had the battles of Jericho and Ai. And then we have this span of them beginning to move in and conquer other territories. Not that that's not important information, but it basically is just giving us, giving us details about how the Israelites began to settle, how the land was divided, the nation of, 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 the, of Canaan, the promised land, was divided up among the tribes. And now we come to the end of the book. Chapter 22, 23, and 24 are basically um, Joshua's series of farewell addresses. And we have in chapter 22 him saying, to the two tribes, two and a half tribes. Remember those that had come across from the east side of the Jordan and said, we'll help, we'll fight for our brothers and with our brothers until everything has been taken care of, and then we will go back home. And so Joshua sends them back home and says to them, don't forget where you've come from. Don't forget what you've learned. Don't forget who your God is. Just because that river's between us, don't be strangers. Now in chapter 23, he brings a speech. Some people believe more to the leaders I think very apropos to us as we sit here on this fulcrum point of a new year. And the next Sunday morning, we'll be in chapter 24 and his final farewell. So read with me, if you would, in your Bible, or if you have your little yellow uh, card that's got the Scripture reading, in, uh, unfortunately, a rather small print because I wanted to get all of it there for you. Um, the only hope I have for today is the fact that next week there are more verses, so maybe even smaller, uh, but, but we'll do our best, okay? may have to take an extra sheet to put the Scripture. We'll see how that works. But follow along with me as I read from Joshua chapter 23, verses 1 through 16. Listen, this is the word of the Lord. A long time after the Lord had given Israel rest from all the enemies around them, Joshua was old, getting on in years, so Joshua summoned all Israel, including its elders, leaders, judges, and officers, and said to them, I am old, getting on in years, and you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account, because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. See, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes. 
including all the nations I have destroyed from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean Sea. The Lord your God will force them back on your account and drive them out before you so that you can take possession of their land as the Lord your God promised you. Be very strong and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn to it from the right or left and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you. Do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them. Do not worship them or bow down to them. Instead, remain faithful to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. The Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you and no one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you as he promised. So be very diligent to love the Lord your God for your own well-being. For if you turn away and cling to the rest of these nations remaining among you, and if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare and a trap for you, a scourge for your sides and thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God. Has given you. I am now going the way of all the earth, and you know with all your heart and all your soul that none of the good promises the Lord your God made to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. Since every good thing the Lord your God promised you has come about, so he will bring on you every bad thing until he has annihilated you from this good land the Lord your God has given you. If you break the covenant of the Lord your God, which he commanded you, and you go and worship other gods, and you bow down to them, the Lord's anger will burn against you, and you will quickly disappear from this good land he has given you. Father, we ask you this morning to open our hearts on this cusp of a new year to hear what it is that you would have to say to us through these words of Joshua as the people of Israel were beginning to open up a new year a new chapter in their lives they lived with Moses they lived with Moses they had lived with Joshua now they were going to be on their own and I pray that we will in his words by the inspiration of your spirit hear what you have to say to us for it's in Jesus' name that we ask it. Amen. Famous last words. Become almost a hobby for some people. Gathering people's last words before they died. And you can get on the internet and just type, just Google famous last words and you will come up with a plethora of pinatas. No, a plethora of quotes from people. Some of them are disparaging. For example... Karl Marx, the founder of communism, for the most part, or the one that really established Soviet communism, is said to have told his housekeeper, who was sitting at his bedside, eager to record his last pearls of wisdom for posterity, said this, last words are for fools who haven't said enough. And then he rolled over on his side and died. Some of them are comical almost in their tragedy. General John Sedgwick a Union officer in the Civil War, or as we like to call the war between the states, the war of the Yankee aggression. Killed in a battle in 1864, General Sedgwick remarked to his aide-de-camp as he surveyed the rebel enemy lines, they couldn't hit an elephant at that distance. Those were his last words. I guess he didn't know about those Tennessee sharpshooters. Some of them are funny, some of them are tragic, some of them are discouraging. 
But when we come to the last words of people in the Bible, they become very, very important. They take on a great meaning. Think about the last words of Jacob, the last words of Joseph, the last words of David. John sets aside three chapters in his gospel to Jesus' last words before he went to the cross. And here in chapters 22, 23, and 24, we have Joshua's last words. It starts out by saying a long time. A long time after what? A long time after the two and a half tribes went back. A long time after they had finished their battles. We're not really sure exactly a long time after what, but we know in chapter 24 that Joshua was 110 years old when he died. We know that Caleb, his partner, remember he was, Caleb was the other of the, of the spies that, that survived that 40 years in the wilderness because they said we can go into land and we can conquer it. The other ten spies said no, but Joshua and Caleb both lived. And when Caleb, along with Joshua, went into the promised land, he was 85. So assuming that Joshua was somewhere around the same age, 25 to 30 years from the time that they had crossed the Jordan until we get to this point. But I think more important than what the long time is all about is the fact it says the long time after the Lord had given rest from all their enemies. That word rest is important. Because now they had peace. Yes, there were still some pockets of other nations scattered around that hadn't been captured. Little little unreached people groups, little mountain peoples, little villages that had not been captured yet, that had not been conquered yet. But for the most part, things were fairly peaceful. And the question was, how would they deal with their peace? Most of us in this room have lived long enough to understand that sometimes it's harder to be faithful in peaceful times than it is in difficult times. Our brothers and sisters in Christ who are struggling every day for their faith know what it means to name the name of Christ. Sometimes in the peaceful, at least up until now, getting a little rocky in some places, but for the most part, peaceful existence we have as Christians in America, we have forgotten sometimes. And so the question is, how will these Israelites deal with the peace that now reigns in this promised land that they have inherited? When you look at the chapter, I believe it divides itself up into probably three pretty easy sections, okay? Verses 3 through 8, verses 9 to 13, and then verses 14 through 16. And like any good preacher, any good speaker, Joshua has certain themes that he repeats in each of those three sections. The best analogy I could come up with was a three-layered cake. They stack on top of each other. Each one is independent, and yet when you slice through them, you see things that are true and that are seen in all three of them. So rather than going from verse 1 to verse 16 in order, I want to show you what I think are the three big themes in Joshua's speech, or his sermon, as it were, and how we see that in each of those three sections, and then how they apply to our lives. I want us to look, first of all, at what they had to remember. Secondly, what they had to understand. And third, what they had to do. And in that, I want us to ask ourselves the same questions. What must we remember? What must we understand? And what must we do? So let's begin with the first of those. What you must remember. We find it right there in verse 3. He says, Joshua says at the end of verse 2, I am old, I'm getting on in years, and you have seen for yourselves everything the Lord your God did to all these nations on your account. Because it was the Lord your God who was fighting for you. You see, even though Joshua was old, most of the people to whom he was was talking were much younger. They had been born in the wilderness, and all they knew about Egypt was what they had been told by their parents. 
And then they had lived through the entrance and all of the victories, and Joshua wants them to remember how God had worked for them in the past. In the 103rd Psalm, verse 2, there's that wonderful phrase where David says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, do not forget all his benefits. Don't forget what God has done for you in the past. Don't forget how God has acted on your behalf. We hear again and again and again and again and again in Scripture that it is our responsibility to give thanks to the Lord for all that He has done for us, to praise Him for what He has done, to give Him praise and honor and glory and thanksgiving. And the question is, why? Why? Why do we need to tell God thank you? I mean, does He he need our thanks? Is He somehow or another bereft if we don't thank Him? Beloved, God does not need our words of thanks. But He deserves them. And we need them. We need to say thank you. To him. We need to express our thanks. God is worthy of all of our praise, and it is good for us to remind ourselves by thanking him for all of the things that he has done. And so as you turn the corner into a new year, and you look back over this past year, what are the things that God has done for you? What, is the ways that, what are the ways that you have seen God's grace in your life? How can you give him thanks for those things that he has done. And you see, when you begin giving him thanks, you begin to deepen your relationship with him. It's just like it is with with two people. You and your spouse, you and your parents, you and your kids, you and your friends. If you are having an attitude of thankfulness, if you're thanking them when they do things for you, when you want to show them your appreciation, what does it do to your friendship? It strengthens it. It deepens it. It makes it richer and sweeter. Otherwise, it's just like a business transaction. And so, as we give thanks to God, it deepens and strengthens our relationship with Him. And it also reminds us that we're on the same team. Because there is opposition out there. Joshua tells them there are still nations out there. You see, in verse 4, he says, I have allotted these remaining nations to you as an inheritance for your tribes, including the All the nations that I have destroyed from the Jordan westward to the Mediterranean, the Lord will force them back on your account. Joshua said, you need to be giving thanks to the Lord for what he has done for you because it will remind you that he will give you your victory in the days to come. That was so natural for Joshua to do, but it's so unnatural for us to do. It really, really is. It really, really, really is. Think about the last time you were in a major crisis. A major issue, a family issue, a job issue, a spiritual issue, a sin issue in your life. I would almost guarantee you that your first response was not to remind yourself of how God had helped you in the past. At the moment, all you could think about was what was going on now. What was happening now? James Montgomery Boyce, former pastor at 10th Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia, where my brother uh, is, a, is a member now. James Montgomery Boyce said, it's so unnatural to us because we tend to be driven and build our faith based on what we feel rather than on what we think or what we know. What we feel in the moment becomes reality instead of, the, of what we truly know, which should be the reality. And that's why many of you have heard me say this. Some of you have heard it ad nauseum. God should rule our minds, our minds rule our hearts, and our hearts rule our hands. You see, Jeremiah told us the heart is what? Deceitful. It will trick you. It will deceive you. Your own heart will deceive you, just like my heart will deceive me and trick me into thinking that something is right when my head tells me that it is not. 
Our hearts are deceitful. And so that's why Paul tells us in Romans that God is doing the renewing of our minds. Excuse me, Ephesians, not Romans. In Ephesians, he is, he is transforming us by the renewing of our minds so that as our minds are changed, our hearts become changed. As our hearts become changed, our actions become changed. And so we have to force ourselves almost at times to do exactly what Joshua tells us here. Well, then, not only does he say it there in verse 3, he repeats it again down at verse 9. Jump down to verse 9 and look at what he says there because there he repeats again. The Lord has driven out great and powerful nations before you. No one is able to stand against you to this day. One of you routed a thousand because the Lord your God was fighting for you as he promised. That's where we go back to Romans chapter 8, verse 31. You know, I am as concerned as anyone. I am sincerely concerned, maybe more than some, about what the next generation is going to experience as far as the church in America. It really, to be perfectly honest with you, matters a little bit, yes, because of Supreme Court issues and stuff, but well, what happens in any one president's administration really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the general tenor and direction that a nation goes. It can shift a little bit one way or the other. But we see a world and a nation that's continuing to move away from the things of God. And it's easy for us sometimes to begin to wring our hands and, and fret over what we must do and, and how we must act. And we forget, listen, who's on our side? God is on our side. So what can man do to us? Nothing that God does not allow. Not one solitary thing. Now, we should be aware. We should be prayerful. We do not need to be afraid. The church of Jesus Christ is not going anywhere. We are here. And then down in verse 14, he says again, I'm now going the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and all your soul that none of the good promises the Lord God made to you has failed. Everything was fulfilled for you. Not one promise has failed. You see, this is not just a historical thing. This is not just a look back and see what God has done. This is a motivational thing. Look back at where you were a year ago. Look back at where you were January 1st, 2016. Look at where you are today. And that should motivate you for where God can take you as you go forward. I would almost guarantee that any demerits, any lack in your life over the last year has not been because God failed. It's been because of what we have done to not listen and follow him. God is faithful. He always is. He always will be. And he will be with us. So that remembrance is not just a historical recounting. It is a motivation as we think forward. So out of that, out of that remembering out of what we must remember then we come to what we must understand and we find it very clearly in verse 7 what do we need to understand in verse 7 Moses uh, Moses listen to me Joshua says I'll start at the end of verse 6 so that you do not turn from it to the right or left and so that you do not associate with these nations remaining among you do not call on the names of their gods or make an oath to them do not worship them or bow down to them Joshua said it is critically important that you understand that you are not to interact and engage in life with these other people now this was not about racial purity okay racial purity has never been an issue in scripture this is about moral and spiritual purity Okay, don't forget that Moses married a Cushite, an Ethiopian. Don't forget that Rahab was brought into the family line. There have always been other people that came in. This is not about racial purity. This is about living lives that are honoring and obedient to God. You see, Joshua knew, and God knew, and God wanted Joshua to remind the people that they understand that they must maintain their sense of who they were. Because, you see, idolatry is always among us. 
And idols are so alluring. You know why? Because we can create them custom fit to what we want. And so we can take them. They look so appealing. So much better than that stiff, unchanging God that says, my ways never change. Do what I say or else. Oh, but look over here. Isn't this, doesn't this look inviting? Doesn't it look appealing? Doesn't it just make your heart beat a little bit faster? And what does it always lead to? It leads to immorality. And not just physical or sexual immorality, but spiritual immorality. We become immoral people because we listen and follow the idols rather than the true God. And so because of that, Joshua wanted them to understand that they had to have absolute laser-focused attention on their lives. Now, beloved, this is where things really begin to hit the road here. I don't know. I'm, I'm 56 years old. I'll be 57 in about three weeks. Young by some of your standards. Old as the crypt by some of others of your standards. Amazing. So I don't know what it was like to live in the 50s, but I heard it was a pretty secular age. I don't know what it was like to live during the end of the war or during the Great Depression. I can barely remember a little bit about what the 60s were like. The 70s were so crazy. Nobody wants to remember those. But let me tell you something. We as Christians have always had struggle to keep a laser-like focus on our spiritual lives because Satan is so amazingly subtle. He is so amazingly crafty. He is so amazingly deceitful that he will find ways that we don't even realize until we've fallen into the pit what it will look like. Look down when you get to verses 12 and 13. He's, there is no room for complacency. In verse 12, he says, listen, if you turn away, if you cling to the rest of these nations remaining among you, if you intermarry or associate with them and they with you, know for certain that the Lord of your God will not continue to drive these nations out before you. They will become a snare, a trap for you, a scourge for your side, thorns in your eyes until you disappear from this good land the Lord your God has given. He said, you've got to be aware You've got to pay attention. As we go into this new year, if there were anything that I could challenge you to do is to understand that idolatry is all around you. Every time you click www. something idolatrous will come up on your screen. Every time that you turn on the television, every time that you open the paper, every time that you go into the store, every time that you walk into the schoolyard, every time that you walk into the college classroom, every time that you walk into your office, Satan is ready, trying his dead level best to deceive us into falling for the lie. We must be constantly aware of his presence and we must be constantly prayerful please if there's anything i can drill into our hearts and our heads this year it is that our enemy is alive and well in ephesians chapter 6 paul says we don't wrestle against flesh and blood we don't battle against flesh and blood guess what we do battle something much more insidious than mere flesh and blood so here's your old hollering preacher at you telling you, be on your guard. Be aware. And when you do slip, because you will, run. Don't walk. Don't pause. Don't wait. Don't sleep. Run to your loving Heavenly Father so that He can excise that, cleanse you, and get you back on track as quickly as possible. So what do we do? How do we do that? What do we need to do? Well, glad you asked. One thing I love about the Bible, it is very practical. 
No offense intended to anyone, but if you don't think the Bible is practical, so you've not read it. At least in a translation that you could take your time and read it slowly and listen to what it has to say. The Bible is amazingly practical. As a matter of fact, in this sermon, Joshua, this sermon, not mine, this sermon, Joshua gives us, you're going to know how many, how many points are there always in a sermon? Three. Three things, but he says them very clearly, that we can do to fight this enemy, to fight this. Joshua is telling these Israelites, listen, I'm about to die. You will not have a strong man leader. You're going to be on your own, and you're going to have to trust God, and these nations will try to trick you. They'll try to intermarry with you. They'll try to lead you astray. They'll try to get you into false worship. They will do all these things, and there's three things you need to do to make sure that you stay true. Number one is found in verse 6. We've heard it so many times in Joshua, we've almost forgotten how important it is. He says, see, be very strong, and continue obeying all that is written in the book of the law of Moses so that you do not turn from it to the right or to the left. Obey God's word. Live a life of obedience. Live in accordance. Spiritual strength is found in obedience to God without deviation. You notice there's a connection between our obedience and God's mighty acts. Because God has acted in the past, we respond to him with obedience. That was the very beginning of the Ten Commandments. I am the God who brought you out of Israel. Therefore, thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thee in your graven image. But it all comes out of what God had already done for them. So God, out of his action for the Israelites in the past, is now the way to stay in relationship with me is to be obedient to what I tell you to do. And he says the same thing to us. Look at what I have done for you through Christ. Look at the life that you have because of me. And in response, you need to be obedient. And by the way, I think it's very important that Joshua says very clearly in verse 6, continue obeying all that is what? Written. All right, Steve, tell us what that means. He didn't say, I just want you to be good, upstanding people. I want you to do the best you can. I want you to live good lives. I want you to be moral. I want you to be clean. I want you to work hard. I want you to do your best. I want you to keep your nose clean. No, 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 no. It was not some amorphous morality code. He said, it's written right here. Obey this. And by the way, when you get to, verse, we get to chapter 24, guess what Joshua did after he finished this last speech? He wrote all of this down that we have in chapters 1 to 24, wrote it into the law of Moses. It became part of the written record. Now we have this complete written record, and it's right here in writing. This is not enough for us to tell our kids, I want you to behave yourselves. I, want you to, I don't want you to do anything you're going to regret when you go out tonight. I want, you to, I want you to be good. You know, you just remember who you represent. This is what the Bible says. This is what I want you to do. This is what God wants you to do. It's very specific, his word. Secondly, not only must they obey, secondly, they must cling. Now, I've got to apologize for the Holman. Although Holman's never asked me to apologize for them, I'm going to apologize for them. Because in verse 8, they translate a little bit differently. If you have another translation, you are blessed of the Lord, especially if you have a New American Standard or an ESV or something like that. I'm not sure about the NIV. I didn't look at that one. But in verse 8, it says, instead, literally it says, instead, cling to the Lord your God as you have done to this day. The Holman says, remain faithful. Well, that's what cling means, but it just loses some of the meaning when it says remain faithful because you're going to see in a minute he uses the same word again for the exact opposite, when they cling to something else. And so Joshua tells them, you need to cling to the Lord. One commentator that I read this week, and I loved it, I don't know if he meant it to be funny or not, he said this is one of the most adhesive words in the Old Testament. This is the word in Genesis 2.24 
It says, a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. He will, they will cling together so tightly that nothing can come between them. Nothing can come between them. In some ways, it's like a child with a parent. When the child is scared, and they wrap around that parent as tight as their little arms can, and they hold that parent tight, and they don't want anything to be able to get them. They want their mommy or their daddy's arms to wrap around them and protect them. But it also is a loving relationship kind of clinging that nothing else is there. And beloved, if you are going to be strong spiritually, if you're going to fight the idols in your life, if you're going to fight the idolatry that reigns in America today, if you are going to be able to stand, you must cling to God. You must wrap your puny little arms around Him and say, I will not go anywhere without you. You are my Father. I trust you. I need you. I need your protection. I need your love. Cling to him. So close. Then you get down to verse 12, and you see what happens if they do the opposite. He says, for if you turn away, and see in the home and here, it translates it right. If you turn away and cling to the rest of these nations remaining among you. In other words, he says, if you're holding on to God with all your strength, and then you look over and go, hey, that didn't look so bad. And God's still there, and you go, hey, I think I like this. And you grab a hold of that and cling to that. He said, it's destruction. It's destruction. It's as bad as any adulterous affair that a married spouse can have when they uncling themselves from them sp- their spouse and go and cling to another one. And everything is ruined. And so Joshua tells them, listen, you need to cling to God as tightly as you can because if you cling to anything else, you'll be ruined. And the last thing, is in verse 11. Said almost as a, just a passing thought, but like so many important things, it carries in its simplicity amazing weight. So, verse 11, be very, very diligent to love the Lord your God for your own well-being. Love Him. What does it mean to love Him? It doesn't mean to love Him for what He does for you. It doesn't mean to love Him for all the things He performs for you, all the times He comes for you in in, in a pinch. It doesn't mean that you love Him because He did what you wanted. It means you love Him because of who He is, because of His great and mighty deeds. It means that you love Him. It is not something that is automatic. It is something that takes energy. It takes a conscious focus. It is not some emotion that can be high and then be low. It is based just like His love for us on a covenant promise that He makes to us. The heart of our faith is a heart relationship with God. That's why in 1 John chapter 4, he says this, very simply, we love him because he first loved us. God pours out. You see, love is the currency of faith. Love is the commodity that we exchange in this life with God. Love is the one thing. Love is the gold standard, if I can use a financial term. Because when everything else fails, love remains. And so what do I ask you to do today? As we start this new year, what do I ask? What does God ask? (laughs) Well, God doesn't ask anything. God commands. What does God command us to do? Number one, you need to obey me. Because I know 
better than you do. What's best for you? You need to cling to me, and I will protect you, and I will keep your eyes focused right here on mine so that all those other distractions will be just that. They'll just be distractions that come in one ear and out the other, and you will learn how to love me as you watch me love you. His love that was most graciously shown us through the cross of Jesus Christ, where he, when we were still sinners, when we were enemies of God, when we did not care about him, we did not want him, we did not want to have anything to do with him, he sent his son to die on a cross for us so that we could have eternal life, not because of anything we deserve. And even our ability to accept him is because God allowed us. Do you really believe you could have accepted Christ if God hadn't let you accept him? Of course you couldn't. You'd be the rankest Armenian in the crowd, and you'll still acknowledge the fact that if God had not wanted you to accept him, you couldn't have. You wouldn't have. Because I don't know about you, but some of you were saved when you were very young. Some of you were saved as adults. Some of you were saved just recently. But the bottom line is there was a time when you didn't want to be a Christian. And then all of a sudden, something happened. Well, I got news for you. God drew his net around you and pulled you to himself. And you responded in faith. For by grace are you saved through faith. And even that is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should be able to boast. And so our love for God is a love based on all that he has done for us. It is based on a desire to want to, to not integrate our lives with the things around us and be able to be purely committed to him by being obedient to him and by clinging to him and by loving him. When we do that, we are willing to do whatever he wants us to do whatever he needs us to do, knowing that he only asks things of us out of a heart of eternal love that we cannot even begin to understand. And we understand what 1 Corinthians 13 means when it says, love never fails. All of my good works, psh, are you kidding me? All of my attempts to prove to God how good I am, Really? All of my recommitments that I'm going to try harder and turn over a new leaf and I'm not going to do that again. I can beat this thing. God says, when are you going to finally give up and just turn it over to me and let me take care of it? Just cling to me and let me have my way with you. And so our only prayer is for Jesus to draw us nearer to himself. And we respond by releasing control and letting him draw us into his arms. Wrap those arms of love around us. Take our face in his hands and turn it upward so we look into his eyes of love and understand, like the book of Song of Solomon, you are my beloved. I am yours and you are mine. Now that's a New Year's resolution that you can live with. Let's pray together. Father, for most of us in this room, there came a point in our lives when you drew us to yourselves, we surrendered our lives, claimed you as our Lord and Savior. Many of us are continuing to grow because we know that a faith that doesn't grow is not a real faith. And as we start a new year, there are many things that we're going to want to try to do this year. But I pray that in this moment we will recognize the fact that nothing that we do in our own power is any more effective than what we did before we became a Christian. The things that we do must always be done in your power. And so, Father, today we ask you to just draw us nearer and nearer and nearer to yourself. Help us today in this new year to recommit ourselves to you, fully surrendered, 
ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Help us to obey and to cling and to love. And may that be seen in us by those around us as they watch our lives and they see the difference between living a life committed to Christ and a life that is hypocritically legalistic. They see the sincerity of who we are as your children, your sons, and your daughters. And for that one or two or three or four or more in the room who have not yet surrendered their lives to you by receiving your son's offer of forgiveness through his blood, I pray that today would be the day that you draw them to yourself, that they will surrender, lay down their weapons, kneel at the foot of the cross and say, yes, that's for me and accept what Christ has done for them. So as we sing, Father, I pray that you'll move in our hearts, for it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. We're going to stand.